When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Muses need vessels. There seems to be certain attributes and conditions that the Muses archetype finds more appealing than others. The nature of these qualities can differ for each person, or as I like to look at it, for each vessel the Muses choose for their purposes. People don't choose muses. Muses choose their own vessels. We don't own the muses. They are not my muses. They are not your muses. They are the muses. The muses work through us and then discard their vessels when we cease to be useful or cease to be appealing to them. Muses run their own impersonal, autonomous agendas beyond the control and comprehension of anyone courting their favor. Note to self, the muses can be fussy, fickle entities. Do not expect consistency. Stay receptive. This is Failed State Update, the podcast. And I am Joseph L. Flatley. And on today's episode, we're talking to... Antaro Ali, a uh, filmmaker, musician, astrologer, experimental theatrical guy, and uh, a man who has a book out called The State of Emergence. Let me look it up. Antaro. All right, come on, Google. State of Emergence, Experiments in Group Ritual Dynamics. I came across Antaro Ali in uh, the 90s, I guess. Timothy Leary, in addition to Turn On, Tune In, Drop Out, and Cyberspace uh, fame, also had a uh, kind of a breakthrough genius map or model of human consciousness that gets referred to as like the eight circuit theory of consciousness. And um, this was really influential on me and kind of how I look at the world. And since... Since Leary's 100th birthday was last month in November, I started talking to people who knew Leary or, you know, added on to his kind of psycho-spiritual project in some way. And uh, Antoro's work is great because it brings the human body into the whole thing. I would say that human consciousness is, uh, is as much about what's in the body as in the mind. The central nervous system doesn't end at the brainstem. And um, although a lot of people in the psycho-spiritual realm are kind of like hostile to the body or not interested in the body, but Antro's work is really a important corrective to that. I think it's becoming clear for everybody that the failing of states, the failing of political and uh, social institutions, is it's a, it's a wake-up call or it's or perhaps it's signaling the next step of human evolution or at least that there must be a next step in human evolution and it's it's thinkers like 
Antro Ali, who I think are pointing us in that direction. So without further ado, let's uh, talk to the author himself. There's so much going on present time-wise that's, uh, I kind of hate to say this, because I've heard it so many times, but unprecedented <laughs> yes. uh, uh, era that we're in, uh, part of which, um, you know, inspired the writing of this uh, book. I didn't have a plan to write a third book. In fact, I was kind of dead against it. I didn't want to write another book. They're too difficult. Uh, writing a book is probably the hardest thing I know how to do, and I'm, I like being lazy in my older age. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, but, you know, the, the pandemic and being indoors and interacting with, um, I guess, people on Facebook um, and just discovering some of what uh, my friends are going through, uh, it's just really sparked a lot of new ideas or new ways of thinking about uh, not only what might be going on, but also uh, the work that has occurred over the last 17 years in this in this paratheater process. So when did you start this book then? Like, just, when did you decide, I have a book in me? <laughs> well, it's weird because I've always known I've had a book in me. I just didn't want to get it out. <laughs> <laughs> it's this weird kind of thing with books. Um, and what um, the trigger that kind of excavated the book um, was when um, my most recent film, uh, The Vanishing Field, um, uh, which is a story about uh, three monks in a Zen monastery. Um, it was scheduled to premiere here in Portland uh, at a local theater uh, March 28th. And uh, the pandemic, of course, had already started and it was expanding and doing whatever it does. Um, and the premiere was COVID canceled. And so right away, it got personal. Everything got personal to me, you know, because I really depend on, um, the, you know, all the work that I put into each of my films to be screened in the large screens. I don't create movies just to be seen on the computer. Um, at least I didn't until now. <laughs> so, you know, things change. And it was that, um, that's probably what triggered something in me that, okay, there's a change happening and that I need to start changing myself to kind of keep up with the times, to not get, you know, left behind so much, but to stay relevant. Um, and so I started writing it in April. So it was just a month after the canceled premiere. And I ended up premiering it on, on YouTube, which I'd never done before with any of my films. Um, and it did really well. I think it's up to like about maybe 3,000 views by now, which is for me, you know, as an underground filmmaker, kind of a big deal. Um, yeah, April, May, June, July, August, September, and October, I, I was writing it. And uh, then it went to press, I think, in probably mid to late October, and it and it became available um in mid-November, I think it was. Like, just, you know, what, three weeks ago. You know, I find that a lot. Like, sometimes I'll have... I'll be writing something, and it will just take forever to come out. And sometimes it's been, you know, the wheels have been spinning. I didn't realize it, but the wheels have been spinning for a long time, and you can just kind of get it out. Sometimes it takes some kind of... Um, well, for me, it's sometimes it takes a kind of outside shock to gain traction on a project that has been, you know, like you say, spinning wheels or um, gone into a kind of a slow track or has just been put on the back shelf because I just wasn't ready to complete it or whatever. Um, and then something happens in my life that is beyond my control, something I didn't create, something that just kind of happened to me. And it acts on me in a particular way, which I'm actually quite grateful for. I'm, I'm a kind of a shock friendly guy. Um, over the years, I've been um, in the practice of, um, you know, pretty much transforming um, the traumas I've endured throughout life, like everyone else. But I've kind of been obsessed with um, looking at my traumas as as creative um, material, kind of like grist for the mill of uh, projects, whether they be, you know, books or theater pieces or, um, or films, and and more recently, uh, music. 
So is that just an attitude or, you know, it seems to me like, especially like looking at your eight circuit book, which I'm more familiar with, a lot of it seems to be geared kind of towards getting us to a state where we can look at shocks that way and take advantage of them. I kind of hate to say this, but I don't think everyone is capable of creative thought. And those people that are, I think, we're going to take to the idea of a more creative response to trauma or a more creative response to shock, um, primarily because those people who are staying creative in their lives, who are capable of creative thought, uh, they find the condition of immobilization more intolerable. And I think this is what happens to a lot of individuals who are not responding creatively to their traumas is that they become immobilized by that trauma and they keep repeating it over and over again. It's kind of a spinning the wheels in, in, you know, into their own wound um, you know, until something comes up where they're able to um, you know, look at it differently and you know, uh, you know, maybe find an outlet for its expression in something more productive than feeling sorry for themselves. Right, right. So maybe now would be a good time to uh, tell us what you mean by paratheatrical work or paratheater? Well, paratheater as a term uh, was coined in the mid-70s, early to mid-70s, by the Polish theater director Jerzy Grotowski. And it was in 1976 into 1977 that I first became exposed to uh, Grotowski's work through his book, Towards a Poor Theater, and also... Um, witnessing a film document of uh, one of his uh, theater lab performances uh, called Acropolis. And the combination of seeing the film and reading the book completely uh, kind of crushed any idea that I had about knowing what theater was or knowing, you know, what my life's work or what anything was. I was kind of traumatized by it. Up until that point, I had been developing um, a fairly high level of skill in the area of mime theater, uh, nonverbal communication, not the pantomime of French, you know, kind of cute mime, but um, I was trained by um, uh, a protege of, of um, the American mime theater, uh, Keith Berger, and that particular uh, medium of mime is really a kind of a hybrid of um, uh, Stanislavski method acting and modern dance with a focus on uh, motivated movement. So it's a more kind of uh, maybe darker or th more theatrical um, vision of mime theater. So anyways, I had been doing that for five or six years and entering, how can I put it, right around the age of, I think I was 24, 25, um, I was introduced to these principles and these methods, and in applying myself, I found such great resistance because I, they, they required that I would relax my control of, of uh, the outcome of my movement. So uh, it, it was a, a deep frustration because everything I had learned to do up to that point was to um, be in complete control of my communication, to be in charge of how it looked, how it appeared, and the outcome of uh, whatever I was doing in performance or teaching. And in this new direction, it was, okay, let's just throw that out right out the window and let's explore uh, sources of energy in the body that er erupt in spontaneous convulsive expressions where you don't know how or where they're going to go. There's no predicting the outcome. And you're being asked to completely let yourself go into the full-on expression of that through you, into movement, into sound, into gesture, into characterization, and the rest of it. Um, so it's a bit of a shock right away just to the transition into a highly controlled medium of physical theater into something that um, was ultimately very liberating but in the beginning was quite traumatic because it, it demanded that I break down certain habits that were 
you know, that I cherished, that I, that I derived a sense of value and identity, you know, like I was who I was because I could do this, take a look at this. So I would perform and people would clap and applaud. And I would decide, oh, this is who I am. <laughs> After that transition into um, Grotowski's um, exposure there, uh, all that just, you know, just went to hell. It just was, I was, it was kind of miserable for about three or four months because I just didn't know you know, it's that in-between zone where you're like in between personalities or in between relationships or in between jobs. You don't really know who you are. And then developing something eventually develops and, and then you come into some newer version of yourself. So it was it was one of those kinds of experiences. And that was in um, 77. So that's how I guess that's like almost like the short story of how it began, because there was a lot of other. Uh, kind of uh, details that dovetailed into that involving relationships and, you know, poverty, uh, making an art out of poverty so that I could do the thing I can, that I loved and not, you know, be tied down to a nine to five job, which I've never had. You know, when I think of theater, I think of somebody telling a story on stage, you know, or when I think of like an acting class, it's like how to convey something. What was the purpose of like Grotowski's theater? Was that, transcending what we think of the traditional theater experience somehow or yeah he um pushed the envelope that um stanislavski opened up he pushed it to the next level and his particular directive was more um uh, uh you know clearly in the area of physical uh, visceral theater where uh, uh the spoken text uh, was secondary to what the performer could um, express and communicate through the instrument of self. And the primary um, kind of uh, crux principle, I think, of Grotowski's work was uh, to train his performers, to train his actors towards uh, what he called the total act uh, or this process of giving of oneself so totally um, that it became really an act of sacrifice on stage and a little bit difficult to describe. I mean, even when I, when I saw it for the first time, because I had never seen anything like that before, and I don't think there anything was ever created like that before. I think he tapped into something uh, unique and uh, individual, not just to himself, but to the era that he was in. Um, and so, I mean, to call it theater is we have to uh, kind of broaden um, uh, the definition of theater a bit there, because there is in Grotowski's work, there is story, there's narrative, um, but it's not um, uh, entirely linear and it's not entirely spoken with words. Um, and because I, my background was more in, in physical theater, um, and it still is more of a love for my life, um, uh, a kind of uh, experimental um, application of principles of physical theater. So I'm not really interested or never have I ever been interested in uh, any traditional theater like proscenium arch stage where the stage is elevated and there's curtains and, you know, that kind of thing. I, I do very well, actually, um, performing and uh, setting up productions um, at the same level as the audience and sometimes even uh, situating the audience in a circle around the performance so the performance happens right in the center where the audience has no no escape they're constantly confronting what's happening there Uh, there's nowhere to hide and this is one of the things that Grotowski introduced was the um, uh, the breakdown of barriers between performer and audience and and do you think the profound effect that his work had on you, where did that come from? Up to that point, I had um, produced two full-length mime plays. And these were, in some ways, um, like symbolist rituals, uh, in a sense, that you had in each play uh, a very similar structure of, um, of, of seven individuals each of them representing aspects of one entity. And these individuals were given specific characters with specific objectives, and then they had a particular interaction throughout the mind plane. It's mostly nonverbal. 
Um, so what we're really seeing is almost like um, uh, uh, for the audience, um, a, a kind of um, uh, unfolding of a certain neurosis or even a psychosis, you know, where all the different parts of one entity uh, fragmented are, you know, searching for each other, can trying to connect with each other, trying to find a way to cohese, you know, towards the end, um, if there is any such thing. So that was what I, I had done. And before that, I was mostly performing um, solo and, you know, with one or two other individuals at um, uh, Renaissance fairs, um, some corporate conference gigs, um, birthday parties sometimes, um, or just even on the streets, you know, uh, street theater kind of style. So you, you kind of described your three books earlier as like kind of different guideposts or you know, way markers uh, on your path. What does your latest book, you know, what, what does that represent for you? My latest book, State of Emergence, Experiments in Group Ritual Dynamics, um, is really a distillation of the development of this group paratheater process that occurred over the last 17 years. And over my, over my 42 year process of doing it, there was a great acceleration that occurred only in the last 17 years, because over in the last 17 years was the only time that I saw um, so many um, productions and live performances produced out of the primarily non-performance work that has occurred, you know, uh, in the, in the previous, um, you know, 25 years. And so over the 42 years, the first two thirds of it was primarily, uh, occurring, um, in non-performance private settings with no audience. It was mostly training processes, uh, uh for, um, those in uh, people interested in self-work and exploring um, how rituals might work without dogma. We were searching for kind of a dogma-free bias for ritual making. And that formed a kind of foundation for a series of performances that developed out of material that was excavated during those non-performance uh, periods. And so the new book, um, is a distillation of that process from ritual into theater, from non-performance, um, uh, kind of what I would call uh, depth work. Uh, work, um, that's probably another way of describing it. Uh, Carl Jung has a phrase called active imagination. And it, in studying his definitions, it seemed to me that what we were doing was a highly visceral version of active imagination, which is to say um, the process of making the unconscious conscious. So an active imagination in psychotherapy um, is more of a passive process, you know, where the client lies down or they're sitting in a chair and they're kind of regurgitating, regurgitating their unconscious and they're dealing with it in a talk way, talking with the therapist. So what we're doing is not talking at all, but um, uh, approaching uh, the process of making the unconscious conscious through a highly uh, disciplined and vigorous and visceral process of giving physical, emotional, vocal, gestural, and action-oriented expression to what is um, percolating just beneath um you know, the, uh, the conscious ego. Um, and that process uh, of excavation of the unconscious or the conscious of the unconscious um, over the last 17 years uh, began to crystallize certain forms or archetypes starting to emerge that were identifiable where I could say, oh, I see what that is. I, that's clear that something's being actually communicated. We're not just making a lot of noise here. Something is, you know, something here is um, ready to be shared, you know, with the public. Um, and so that's what the new book is about, is this really this process. And it's 
pretty chock full with um, methods and a basic explanation of the principles and the philosophy. Um, it also contains uh, five rituals uh, laid out in detail from um, uh, five levels of difficulty, like the, the most, uh, the, like the easiest one to the most difficult one. And the more difficult ones simply are more difficult because they require um, more commitment on behalf of the individual and, and, and the group involved. Uh, the new book also contains um, uh, reports uh, from you know, individuals that have done this work, um, as well as uh, some of my um, uh, private ritual journals, things that I, um, I personally underwent as a result of doing the work myself, and keeping certain journals or certain notes as I went along. Um, and so there's a distillation of my ritual journals in there, especially around um, uh, the, uh, certain rituals that uh, occurred over a nine-year period where we were exploring um, uh, the archetype of the muses, M-U-S-E-S, uh, and how... Um, you know, those experiences actually uh, began informing, uh, inspiring, and shaping um, the various narratives, uh, characters, and plots of many of my films, especially since 2009. So you're kind of describing a process through which you're experiencing these rituals. You know, what is that like? What are you kind of describing there? Because... You know, it's really interesting to me that you do this work, you gain insights, it informs your work. It's kind of like a cyclical or circular uh, activity. Yes, exactly. Um, you know, over the years, there's been many uh, motivations or reasons for me doing doing this work. And I would say over the last um, 10 years, uh, that motivation has shifted significantly towards um uh, the creation of um, artifacts, specifically films, and more recently theater pieces, um, that you know, again inspired by my encounter with the Muses archetype. Now, in in terms of like explaining, like what was that experience like? That's where it gets kind of tricky because um, the um, the actual. Uh, contact, um, the initial raw open-ended contact with the archetype, uh, there is no language for it. Um, uh, there is an, an ineffable impression. Uh, sometimes there is a strong visceral reaction in, in me. Sometimes I scream or sometimes I laugh uncontrollably. Sometimes I'm, you know, uh, groveling on the floor. Sometimes I'm jumping up and down. So I am reacting to these ineffable shocks is what they feel like. And it's not until um, after the ritual where things have kind of settled, where I kind of cool down a little bit, that certain images are starting to come up um, as I review what has you know, transpired and I'm writing some notes. And so these images are coming up. And it's as those images... Um, that then start informing um, stories, uh, characters, uh, plots, twists, turns. And in a sense, with a kind of energy that um, kind of carries it, carries the project on its own. And what I mean by that, this is a very kind of strange thing to describe as well, because each one of these films, um, and they're about one every other year, uh, so there's like five of them there, uh, feature films, these are feature lengths. Uh, each of the films, they were all difficult to make because they're teamwork processes, each one takes about a year to make. However, there was always a quality of grace around each one where things just started coming together as if there was some other assistance happening where I wasn't just by my own efforts making it all happen. Um, and this is the part I can't quite explain, except that in my interaction and dialogue with the Muses archetype, I have come to know the Muses archetype as um, an autonomous phenomena, meaning I have come to know it as having a life of its own. It's, it's not my muse. 
uh, it's the muse. It, it requires or demands a kind of respect. It's not a it's not a function of propriety. I don't own it. Uh, it's not mine. Um, there is another um, level of awareness here. And as I have come to maybe respect the autonomous nature of the muse, meaning the muse is not on my watch. I'm on the muse's watch. Um, over, over the years, I've come to interact uh, with the various projects that demand, you know, not just a lot of individuals and talent, talent and crew, but also how to raise the money, where are the locations, what kind of gear. Am I, it's just a very complicated process making each film. And so to notice a level of grace where things just start coming together and where there's some other process, some other, I don't know, agency that wants this film to get made. Um, the only thing I can kind of attributed to, I, I say, oh, this is grace. There's something graceful happening here. And I don't expect it to happen that way every time because it is so uncommon when it does. Um, and yet every time that it starts out, uh, meaning every time the process starts out, um, you know, through um, some interaction with the Muses archetype, um, a certain quality of grace tends to come along with it. You know, you use this phrase in the book a couple of times, which I really love. Um, the body is presented as the living embodiment of the so-called subconscious mind. Yeah. Yeah, that seems to be like key to kind of all of this. Yeah, it it, it really is for us, um, for me anyway. You know, so, you know, most of what happens in the body is not visible to the naked eye. You know, all the miraculous interactions between organs and different biosystems, you know, the blood, the cells, the bones, you know, uh, the DNA, all of it is invisible. It's unconscious. It's not available to, in that way. And yet there's ways to interact from a conscious ego to that subconscious. So this is a big part of what has been happening here is, um, uh, establishing a relationship between conscious ego and the invisible um, sources of energy in the body. Um, sources of energy that, for example, the Hindu chakra system, the energy centers in the body, sustained by the organs themselves, a glandular system uh, in the body, uh, in the living body, in the living, living human body. Um, you know, this is not a theoretical or symbolic system. Uh, it, you know, the, the organs are not symbolic. You know, they're biological. And so there's emanations. Um, and there are ways of increasing that emanation or amplifying those emanations. And this is part of what we do in the paratheater process, which, um, you know, not only are we, um, you know, working with the physical body um, extensively, um, and meeting the physical body's central need of feeling being felt deeply. Uh, but also we're in the process of um, uh, activating um, the energetic body, um, uh, the uh, light body, um, the nervous system becomes activated or amplified. And so this becomes its own kind of discipline and its own kind of responsibility um, especially to those people who have been doing this work for more than a couple of years, because after each of these three hour paratheater sessions, uh, the nervous systems are all activated. It's like, we're all kind of lit up and it feels great. We're all high. But if you don't know how to discharge that energy, you pretty much stay up all night <laughs> and, and you know, you don't get to sleep until five or six in the morning. And you know, that could be fun. That could be good. But sometimes people just, you know, you just need to sleep. So, you know, we have found different ways of, of um, neutralizing the charge. And uh, the primary discipline for us in this work is, is a standing meditation uh, we call no form, uh, which we um, um, incorporate extensively, um, you know, before each ritual uh, we enter to cultivate an internal receptivity through the process of emptying out, uh, approaching some level of um, no mind or internal receptivity to energy sources in the body so that we can begin uh, opening up to those sources as movement resources. 
to animate our uh, expression. And then after we're all animated and expressed, then we return to no form. And then that same practice, um, you know, doubles as a trans dispersion device, uh, something that, um, you know, assists in the dispersion of, of the charge that was generated by, um, you know, getting all, you know, shot up with this energy um, in the first place. Who do you see uh, using your books, or have you heard back from people who have started uh, with your most recent book? Uh, the recent <laughs> book's only been out a few weeks. That's so, true. <laughs> That's um, right. No. But the book before that, the one um, Towards an Archaeology of the Soul, which was um, published in 2003, and it's still in print, um, definitely, you know, I get emails from individuals, um, you know, seeking some kind of feedback. They're testing the material. They're working with small groups, um, going through uh, the various uh, methods and rituals. And then I can sometimes interact with them, uh, give them some feedback. But primarily the people that are going to be um, drawn to this because it, it's it's a very marginal um, medium, meaning um, uh, it's not for everybody. Isn't it's not like a populist ritual kind of medium. Um, but so far, um, uh, those that have found it useful and have contacted me um, already have some history in physical theater or dance or singing or some artistic medium um, where they're seeking to expand their access to the internal landscape, uh, to the internal landscape of the body's impulses, emotions, uh, images, uh, maybe being able to access deeper levels of archetypal patterns that are occurring that really govern their existence as they know it. And so that kind of access to the internal landscape um, is like gold to any creative artist because, you know, it becomes uh, a resource of generating material for whatever, you know, artistic expression that they're committed to. Um, also, because this particular work um, tends to work best, it tends to be most effective in an asocial climate um so it's 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 a strange kind of group dynamic here because it's not a group that meets to meet their social needs their uh, 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 the asocial climate is in a sense um there to frustrate social needs meaning um uh if if you're uh, social needs for support, your social needs for acceptance, your social needs to find yourself attractive or be attracted to other people, the social needs for courtship, for community, for belonging, all these really important social needs um, are not met in this work. They're not, there's no real place to meet those in this work. The, the agendas of the work are very different. Um, and this is why I call them asocial. So if, those individuals whose social needs are already met, they have a way of meeting their needs outside of this process, tend to do much better because then they can uh, experiment and explore, um, you know, the possibilities of meeting, you know, with other people um, for other reasons than for meeting their social needs. Um, uh, and these other reasons uh, start with realizing a... Um, uh, a non-responsibility for other people in the room and then shifting that sense of responsibility to uh, one's own moment-to-moment -moment experience and then shifting it even deeper within oneself to begin that internal receptivity for beginning the access of the internal landscape so that you can begin excavating or making the unconscious of your own body conscious in expression and so you're there really as a, um, you know, almost as a, um, um, someone uh, using their own self as a kind of guinea pig or kind of experiment, a kind of lab to discover 
what it is that, um, uh, what are the complexes within you that you didn't know about? Uh, what are the unknowns? And then giving expression to those uh, in uh, whether it's movement or sound or um, you know patterns of motion or ways of, of 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 making sounds or even you know stories that come out almost like um, uh, not like um, gibberish, but sometimes. Uh, Entire sentences form, but you don't know where they're coming from. They just come through. And then, so, you know, it becomes this kind of um, um, experiment on oneself um, that is uh, not a social experiment at all. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So it's not a social experiment, but it requires multiple people. <laughs> it's an interesting kind of dichotomy. Well, it's it's a it's a dichotomy um, uh, until you can um, relax uh, the um, the idea that the main reason for people to get together is to fulfill their social needs. If you can find another reason for meeting with a group than to meet their social needs, uh, that's when you can start. The shift, and there's a shift from the social to the asocial. And the asocial is not antisocial. It's not a socially hostile environment. It's simply uh, an environment that's sanctioned for a certain discovery process um, that is not based on, um, you know, getting anything from anybody else, you know, getting approval, getting uh, support, getting this or getting that. Um, and so when that is relaxed, this tendency to just stop wanting things from everybody else, um, there can be the possibility of shifting that to another reason for being there, another reason. And so then it starts moving into more uh, maybe spiritual reasons, uh, maybe almost like psychic reasons, uh, uh, different uh, motivations for doing this work emerge over the over the years. A number of different reasons why people would even want to come into this process, and you know, in, in the first place. Um, but anybody that did come into the process, and this is something I've noticed firsthand, with the intention of making friends or finding community or gaining support, uh, they would tend to become frustrated, and then they would just drop out. It must be very powerful. I, I've definitely noticed during the um, COVID uh, bardo, as, as you called it, just how ingrained this social aspect of our personality is. Like, you know, for instance, the rule now is if you're near someone, especially a stranger, wear a mask, they have to wear a mask. And it's, quite frankly, life or death in a lot of situations. And still, like... You know, I find myself, like, not wanting to tell a person to put their mask on. Like, say you go into a bank and the person forgot to pull their mask up. And that's totally the social part of my brain that you don't notice, I guess, maybe in more normal times, just how much sway that has until the imperative is to break it. But, you know, you're just trained not to. So I must imagine that it's very powerful to have a discipline that allows you to step away from that. And, you know, you approach it when it's appropriate and not approach it when it's, you know, inappropriate. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's an experience to, yeah, to be free of the social and then to return to the social. Uh, I got, I'm not necessarily antisocial. I like interacting with people and hanging out and stuff like that. Um, but in the context of this work, uh, it's nice to kind of step into another, almost like a, like a time and a space set apart from all that. What's one of the things I found really interesting um, about the pandemic, especially not just not just the pandemic, because I don't even know what that looks like, um, but um, you know the social restrictions imposed uh, by the media and the government, what have you, um, has really introduced a, a novel experience for the populace, and that is it has forced an awareness of space onto people that perhaps they had not encountered before. And space around other people, space around themselves, uh, force them into their own space, 
uh, force them into having more experience with their own world, their own experience of their own energy uh, in that so-called quarantine, which is a really strange word to use because I always thought quarantine meant to separate the sick from the not sick. So I just look at it, okay, this is actually voluntary house arrest, right? So <laughs> I'll, I'll just go with that. But, you know, there's all kinds of terms and words that are being thrown around right now that is almost has its uh, a kind of a mass uh, hallucination effect, uh, kind of a hypnotic effect where people just start believing simply because it's spoken over and over and over again. Uh, the thing about distancing and, um, you know, the, the quarantine or, you know, house arrest or whatever you want to call it. Um, but I'm really curious about what happens when this so-called COVID thing subsides enough, just enough to people are starting to come back out of the woodwork, so to speak, and out into, you know, the new normal, whatever that might be. Because I'm thinking that this forced awareness of space and spatial awareness may actually be a good thing. Um, you know, part of living in um, the United States um, that I, as I have for the last 50, 60 years, um, I, I've only been here since I'm, I was 11 or I'm 68 now. Um, I was just, just, I was onto something there and it just kind of, it, 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 it something flipped the switch. So, okay, it's coming back here. Um, right. Okay. So one of the things that I've, I've noticed living here um, is a certain, um, I think there's even a word for it, agrophobia, a certain avoidance or fear of space in the, and not just in, in, in the, um, the habits of people filling their houses with stuff, more and more things, but also their minds, filling their minds with more and more um, ideas, beliefs, assumptions, um, theories, systems, um, certitudes, religions, whatever it is. So there's always this um, stuffing the space with things, whether it's material or immaterial. And so there's this break, there's this interruption where all of a sudden, you know, people are forced to be more aware of the space around other people. And it's a little bit perverse because it, along with that, there's this um, assumption that you have to have six feet because the person coming at you, it might carry an illness that could kill you. You know, that sort of thing. Like, oh, no, here comes another corvid corpuscle or another sick person that might get me. So there's this huge, you know, hallucination that's kind of over the land. So people get within six feet and they're wincing, you know, without even realizing that the other person might not be sick at all. So again, a kind of a, a hallucination uh, effect. And so I, I don't know exactly how it's going to turn out, but I'm really curious. And I'm, this is part of the reason why I wrote the book and why I called it state of emergence. Um, because I think that, um, uh, you know, there's there's some um, so so I'm, I will, uh, a few things going through my mind right now, and one of them um, is a pandemic uh, that occurred uh, back in 1855, and I mention that year because um, I'm also an astrologer, and so I, I, I watched the um, uh, the timing of orbits of planets and how they may coincide with certain historical shifts. Um, I'm not saying that the planets out there control or cause these shifts, but there's a certain measure of timing that that um, uh, that I uh, uh, that I follow with 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 my astrological studies. Anyway, um, currently the transit of uh, of Neptune is in direct opposition to the United States. Uh, Neptune. And Neptune, um, astrologically, it refers to many things, but one of them is um, uh, pandemics, or those events that force uh, a global awareness um, for everybody involved. 
of some kind. Um, so uh, the last time Neptune was where it is right now was in 1855. So I look back, what was going back then? The third plague is what they called it. So also, this, well, I don't know about also, but this one started in China and it moved to India and Hong Kong. And it was also sometimes called the bubonic plague and it claimed about 15 million uh, people uh, that died. Now, what also occurred during this time is that the, the various governments clamped down on the populaces and there resulted a series of revolts all across the country, all across the world. So I'm thinking that something like this is going to happen soon here. And it could happen, you know, in conjunction with this whole conflict around, you know, Inauguration Day and what's really going to happen. And, you know, who knows, you know, what kind of, um, you know, historical dynamism uh, 70 million uh, Trump supporters have um, <laughs> once once their their king unleashes, you know, the instructions or whatever. Um, and also, um, uh, there can be a, um, along with the revolts, um, uh, something that also happens uh, in the area of revolts and also post-war time is these powerful cultural resurgences, a kind of an emergence of a new cultural direction that occurs. Um, it certainly occurred, you know, a uh, hundred years ago, um, you know, with, with the, uh, what they call the Spanish flu and coming out of that into the 1920s was a huge, um, cultural revolution, you know, with the, with the birth of surrealism, with jazz, with, in literature, with James Joyce. And I mean, it just goes on and on. So this is something that is uh, super interesting to me to see if I might've accidentally written a book that might actually make more sense like two or three years from now than it does today as a kind of a bedside, you know, philosophical reader that someone reads, but they can't do anything about because there's a pandemic. Right, right. Well, you know, it's interesting because, like, the kind of approach to consciousness that you kind of describe in your book really seems to be at odds with, like, how most of us are handling this pandemic event, you know, cause it's like t being plugged into a screen constantly, either talking to somebody or watching television, you know, it seems to kind of be the exact opposite of what you're describing. So maybe there'll be a backlash once we can finally leave our homes, you know, or just a response or, you know, a movement in the other direction. Yeah. My sense is that somewhere along the line, um, you know, right now I think people are scared for the most part, I mean, I don't like generalizing because there's so, always so many exceptions to the rule. Um, but at some point, um, people are just going to get fed up and pissed off because it feels like their lives have taken been taken away from them and they, they want their lives back. And this is often um, incentive enough to revolt, you know, at a certain point. And so we just have to see how, how things go, you know, what, um, you know, so, yeah, it's, it's curious, you know, there's, um, it can go a number of which ways, you know, it's not like any one thing will happen. It will be probably a number of things happening at the same time, uh, each of them contrary to everything else. <laughs> right, right. What do you mean uh, in your, all your books, really, the term vertical sources, verticality, what are you describing there? So, um, verticality um, refers to... Um, uh, kind of a, a subject of experience of um, a kind of vertical column uh, made up of energy that one might feel coming down from above through the top of your head and going down through the spine, uh, through your legs, through your feet, into the earth. Simultaneously is energy coming up from the planet. Yes, the planet is alive and full of emanation. And that energy comes up through the soles of the feet and also the base of the spine simultaneously as the energy from above is coming down. And it forms this sense of vertical uh, or kind of a vertical column of energy. And 
it's kind of a plumb line in effect. Um, many dancers, especially you know ballet dancers um, and other dancers that um, uh, depend on a high level of form, uh, where they have are uh, depending on their physical body to uh, maintain balance, they have to maintain some sense of the vertical. So the verticality is in relationship to the horizontal. So there are like two planes of existence, the vertical plane, horizontal plane, and together they create a cross, an equilateral cross. And the horizontal plane of experience is simply, you know, what is across from you. It's like the world at large. It's other people. Uh, it's your work. It's your family. It's, um, it's the media, everything that's across. And then vertical is more of the internal uh, dimension you know, you might call it the realm of the soul or the immaterial spirit within you um, that is not dependent on uh, the horizontal or external um, world um, as uh, to validate or, or to confirm its existence. You know, for example, in um, monasteries, um, you know, and other kinds of um, uh, alternative uh collectives that set themselves apart from the rest of society, that they come into a more uh, naturally, uh, uh, more natural access to their own verticality, uh, separate from the more horizontally identified, horizontally oriented culture at large. And so uh, the paratheater work focuses um, almost exclusively on verticality. And then once it's established, meaning once an individual can um, discover a certain vertical stability or a certain vertical integrity where they can access that sense of verticality, then we begin opening up to interacting with other people in the room in a way that sustains your verticality while interacting with others. So it's not like we're getting lost in the interaction with others, but somehow maintaining an awareness of your own vertical integrity while interacting with others develops into a, a very novel way of perceiving others, a, a very novel way of interacting and knowing oneself in relation to others. Um, it's just simply not known in, in you know, the more conventional social interactions that, you know, that you and I have gone through. And have you kind of taken note, um, I, I certainly have, and I'm, I'm wondering your perspective being, you know, in this field for a long time, being a, a new Falcon author for many decades. Um, uh, original Falcon. Original new, Falcon, that's Yeah, right. because they're, they're at war with the new Falcon publications. There's two different publications. Oh, yeah, that's that. a whole mess. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let people Google it if they want to. You know, I'm just wondering, from your perspective, you know, we kind of seem to be in a, I don't know if renaissance is the right word, but, you know, just alternative spirituality, alternative thoughts about consciousness and stuff. It's, it's pretty big right now. Have you kind of taken note of that? Well, um, the 80s, as I knew it, I lived in um, Boulder, Colorado um, for five years in the 80s. And it kind of represented a kind of a new age mecca. Anybody that was into the whole new age consciousness movement would be moving to Boulder. It becomes this whole kind of scene there. Um, and I wrote, you know, several of my books out of that scene, um, myself, uh, and what I'm starting to see here is a resurgence, uh, is a little troubling because there's this, um, kind of wonderful phrase that's come along, um, with those people who are more prone to critical thinking. And that is a phrase, spiritual bypass, where all these so-called consciousness, um, methods or ways of waking up or ways of, um, you know, aligning with spirit or, you know, all these things um, may, in fact, for many, not for all, but for many, um, be acting as an escape attempt from a world they don't want to live in, a, a, a world that is 
becoming increasingly more difficult or more harsh or cold or more intolerable. And so there's this kind of uh, movement to find ways of, of um, you know, living uh, in their own bubble uh, so they are not interrupted, you know, by the reality around them um, or they minimize the interruptions. So there's that part of it, but also there's the bright side of it that people are, I think, uh, obviously waking up to uh, the planet as a living entity, a living entity that has, in a sense, embodied as the planet. And that's more um, in alignment with my own spirituality as someone that uh, firmly believes that the, um, uh, the earth is calling the shots. Um, you know, nature bats last, so to speak. And so, you know, the, the things that are occurring, everything from the COVID through, I mean, on and on and on about climate change and, you know, things that are being, I think, falsely uh, blamed uh, exclusively to human beings or technology may in fact also be part of the planet's own agenda, its own evolutionary imperatives, its own processes and changes that it's going through, uh, irregardless of the human inhabitants. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, I have noticed it and, you know, it's simultaneously encouraging and troubling. So are we all doomed? (laughs) (laughs) I think some of us are. So that was the uh, world-renowned Antero Ali. For more info on him, you should check out his website, Vertical Pool Productions. That's uh, verticalpool.com for cinema, poetry, music. And uh, I think maybe you can even book a uh, astrology session there. So that's verticalpool.com or paratheatrical.com for more info on his uh paratheatrical rituals and uh, check the show notes for all the links and uh, thanks for listening
One day we'll 